Welcome to Conversations About Government in Iowa. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on Wednesday, June 28, 2017. Alice Wisner of the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency interviewed Letty Prell, Director of Research at the Department of Corrections. The discussion included talking about her 36-year career with the Board of Parole, the Criminal and Juvenile Justice Planning Division of the Department of Human Rights, and the Department of Corrections. Topics covered included advances in reducing recidivism, risk assessments, and sentencing reform efforts. This is Alice Folk-Wisner, and I am speaking with Letty Prell of the Department of Corrections. And I am visiting with Letty today because she is retiring this fall after how many years have you been with the state? About 36 years. 36 years with the state. So I wanted to sit down with Letty and talk with her and reminisce a little bit about when she started with the state and changes that have happened that she has seen over the years in the corrections area. And I just think that she's always been a great resource to legislators and to staff. I know that even when I worked here in the late 80s and early 90s, Letty's name was a name that was a go-to person when you wanted information, good information about policy and numbers. So, Letty, let's start out with, tell me about your early years and how did you come to land with the state of Iowa? Well, I was finishing up my degree at Drake University in public administration and economics when I enrolled in the class that one had to do a public service internship. And I found one at the state in the old Office for Planning and Programming, OPP, that was run by, was it Bob Tyson? at the time, and I was helping the CETA, oh gosh, what the heck did CETA ever stand for, but some sort of employment grant. And next door to that area was the Statistical Analysis Center, which did criminal justice statistics. And toward the end of my internship, someone told me who was looking out for me said, hey, there's a job opening up at Statistical Analysis Center. And I said, well, I don't quite have my degree yet. And they said, oh, don't worry. It's a statistical assistant to position that doesn't require a college degree, just some college math. And I'm like, well, I have the college math. I'll apply. I applied. I got the job and ended up finishing up my degree in night school. And here I am, 20 years old, working with the state of Iowa. And the first thing I learned was offender risk assessment for the Iowa Board of Parole. We did risk assessments for the Iowa Board of Parole then. And that's something that has never gone away. <laughs> that has never gone away from me. Yes, yes. I have tried to leave various agencies for others, but the risk assessment has absolutely followed me everywhere I've gone. But you know, I, I love it. That's the rewarding part of the job. So what year was that when you... Well, 36 years it ago. It was, so. I believe I started with Statistical Analysis Center in June of 1981. Okay. And then on September 2nd, I was sitting doing risk assessments in the big file room at the Iowa Board of Parole when I noticed that people were shouting around me. And I found out that 
the Iowa State Penitentiary was rioting at that time. Oh, my. The parole board was in the Hoover Building right next to the Department of Corrections, and all of that hullabaloo was because of the riot. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here in this file room doing risk assessments for the parole board for people coming up for review, and that's when I saw the big picture. Mm -hmm. At least, I know there's more to a riot than simple overcrowding. It was a lot of different conditions and things at the time that contributed to that riot, but as far as me sitting there doing my job, I saw what was happening, that the reason I was doing risk assessments for the parole board was so they could see which offenders were less of a threat to the public as they were coming up for review than others, mm -hmm. and help them make decisions to potentially keep the prison from becoming even more crowded. Remind me of my history. Was that the last time that we've had a prison riot in Iowa? Yes. What was the outcome of that? That's one thing that I've wanted to go back and research a little bit, but I haven't mm -hmm. gotten that done. I'm sure you were in on all of the details from the very beginning, and were there any deaths? How long did it take for them to... There was one offender that was murdered by other offenders. There were a lot of uh, damage to the penitentiary that happened. Mm -hmm. I believe it was quickly brought under control. Mm -hmm. I don't know a lot about the outcome except that that's when the federal judge placed a cap on the population at the Iowa State Penitentiary and perhaps those, see I was very young and a statistical assistant at the time, mm -hmm. but that potentially then contributed to the cap on the prison population in total mm -hmm. that went into the appropriations bills for the state from 1981 to, oh, I think it came off in 1988, mm -hmm. something like well, that. Well, we pray there's never another prison riot in the future. Mm -hmm. and But what an opportunity for you and a, a moment for you to kind of see that big picture, mm -hmm. to see what you were, the piece that you played and how that was yeah. um, for the safety of the state overall, basically. Mm -hmm. So you started with doing risk assessments for Board of Parole. So kind yes. of segue into Board of Parole. What kind of changes have you seen with them over the years? Because even though Board of Parole and Department of Corrections are separate entities, you still work very closely together. Mm -hmm. Now, right now, is when the Iowa Board of Parole and the Iowa Department of Corrections have the best working relationship. I remember otherwise in the past. The Iowa Board of Parole was very independent-minded, and they should be. The Parole Board makes independent decisions, taking into consideration the recommendations of Department of Corrections staff, but there was a lot of disagreement and conflict and perhaps some distrust in the old system, and it's been really great to see the Parole Board and the Department of Corrections come together as partners in achieving, aimed toward the same goals, mm -hmm. and that has, I think, improved our ability to work together and make really good decisions. I really respect 
the parole board today. I respected the old parole board. There were some very colorful characters in the past. <laughs> Last interim, I sat in on a morning of parole hearings, and it just amazed me the efficiency and the focus and the amount of work that they got done in that period of time. I mean, yes. they're not fooling around. <laughs> yes, yes. So I wanted to ask you, with your years of experience, what are some correctional trends that you've seen? Sometimes we think it's the new big thing when actually it's something that's been tried 20, 30 years ago. Have you seen some of those correctional fads or trends come and go and come back again. I know risk assessment is something that you've worked with throughout your career, but some mm -hmm. of the other things that get some press every once in a while, that's like, oh, well, we've been doing that forever. Anything along those lines? Not really fads, but there's been a growing professionalism that I've seen over the 36 years, not just within the Iowa Department of Corrections, but also within the Iowa Board of Parole. The data boom that began in the late 1970s and has continued today, the data boom has helped draw attention to the significant trends and there has been a growing movement to make decisions based on the data and the trends and to improve, and that has completely led to professionalism in the field. And by a data boom, do you mean just the amount of data that's available and accessible? Yes. When I started in 1981, there was a very rudimentary database Actually, there were physical files. The database for the Iowa Department of Corrections, the prison database, I think got started around 1984 when I was, I worked over at Parole Board in the 80s for I think about five years. So we started with physical files and I collected data by hand and I did risk assessments by hand. And then in 1984... And you were doing that for each <laughs> offender, correct? Yes. Wow. <laughs> yes, pulling the files in the file room. And doing it by hand. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was how it all started. Uh -huh. And then in 1984, the prison database on the mainframe got started. But the amount of information was very basic. It could compute time served and time computations. And there was a very rudimentary program area. But now with ICON, we have an integrated database with a lot more data items and a lot more attention on assessment and programming within the database. And we have the capability of evaluating programs for effectiveness a lot faster and without as many resources as it took in the past when you literally needed teams of researchers, some to collect the data, some to analyze the data. Data entry, data, I mean, it, the, the amount of effort it took to evaluate one program mm -hmm. in the past was substantial. And now we have that capability to, oh, what are you doing for the next 60 days? Oh, we could potentially put together a fairly good analysis of this program and if it works. And that's especially important in a period of time where we have fewer and fewer resources available to measure the effectiveness of those programs. And I know sort of a tug of war, sometimes there's a program that is very effective, 
but yet the cost of that program per offender that it helps is much higher than another program that may not be as effective but reaches many more offenders. That's yes. always a this, struggle. Yes. So and that happened, Alice, in 2011 and 2012, where we were trained in the Pew MacArthur Results First Return on Investment. Because mm -hmm. before it was, yeah, does this program work? Doesn't it work? But when we need to look at the budget and ask for resources, we also need to balance out the costs of these programs and is that higher cost worth it? That higher cost is absolutely worth it when we're talking about institutional education programs and vocational education programs that our community college partners teach within the prison system. Those are sort of expensive. Those are expensive programs, but the amount of recidivism reduction we get from those programs is huge compared to some other programs. But also there are some little programs that are inexpensive to run. And thinking for a change that's a cognitive-based intervention, cognitive-based interventions have a, a modest recidivism reduction effect. They work, and they work a bit, but you cannot find a cheaper program to run because all it takes is some staff time and a certain amount of weeks. Mm -hmm. And we can run more of those classes than we can readily expand vocational education mm -hmm. slots. But as a matter of fact, over the last five years, we have been expanding vocational education slots thanks to the funding as well as institutional education. And that's been really super to see. And then as well, we have been starting apprenticeship programs that are in partnership with the Federal Department of Labor. And those programs go beyond traditional vocational education training by providing on-the-job experience and hours so that these people can come out of prison with skills and experience and can find quality jobs. Just recently toured Rockwell City and was very impressed with the amount of, and I know that Rockwell City is designed to be kind of one of the last steps before the offender is released and the idea is to give them more responsibility and the education aspect of it and the work release and the internships. You had mentioned the data boom that you've seen happen over the years and I know the Justice Warehouse over with CJJP is something that I've taken for granted but <laughs> was not always there. So kind of tell me about how that developed and your role in that and, yes. and work with that. And I was at the Division of Criminal and Juvenile Justice Planning for 15 years, and during that time we developed the Iowa Justice Data Warehouse, beginning with the courtside data. So my colleagues, Dick Moore was in charge of the agency at the time, and uh, Laura Riedergrub was my colleague. It was pretty much us three that f helped figured out with our Department of Administrative Services, was it maybe the Department of General Services at the time, their purchasing guy to help us put out a request for information. We didn't know what to build, what we needed. Beginning with the court data, I think the legislature really was the driving force to build this because they needed answers to their questions about 
convictions and sentencing and fines and fees coming out of the court side. And at the time, there was no centralized repository for court data that at the time they were, that data was residing in county level, on county level servers. So there was a need to draw pertinent information from, I would have said 99 computers, but I found out that there were 100 computers because one county had two. So we drew information, we selected a vendor and plan to draw information from 100 county computers and provide a centralized repository for it so that we could run one report and get statewide answers. And that was at the time, very cutting edge, and now, yes, we take it for granted. <laughs> we do. And after the courts were on the data warehouse on the criminal justice side, corrections began to see a need to do that too. Mm-hmm. It's always taxing to run reports off of an operational system. It's better to get for complicated questions and answers. You need to take the data that you need from there, put it somewhere else so you can utilize all of the processor time, that massive processing time that you need to crunch data of that magnitude. And with the warehouse, it's been also innovative to see CJJP, Criminal and Juvenile Justice Planning, do a linkage between the corrections and the court data so that we could get at more complete information on the reasons for probation revocation, the reasons for parole revocation, because it could match across to the court system and look at outcomes for any Mm -hmm. new charges that a probationer or a parolee had done. Mm -hmm. And in the past, we were relying on the revocation report written by the probation parole officer, and a lot of that is in narrative, and we Mm -hmm. can't do data on narrative. Mm -hmm. So that's been, that was a real innovation. Now we're to the point where the CJJP has a web tool where anybody can go in and say, oh, how many OWIs were there in the state of Iowa during this year or in this judicial district or some other rudimentary queries that you can do yourself now. I don't always have to bug that Sarah. Is, yes, yes, and we love it. We love making data available so that um, we don't have to answer every little question. Yeah. And that's amazing, too, to see uh, this is part of transparent government and making data more available. And the Iowa Department of Corrections and Iowa Board of Parole now have some data sets out on the data.iowa.gov, the Iowa Open Data Site. So people can go in and do their own analyses of recidivism. What's the recidivism rate for Hispanic women? Or what is the recidivism rate for people aged 42 to 50? The public can go in and do these analyses for themselves now and get at issues. They can look at time served prior to parole by different offense Mm -hmm. types and different dimensions. Mm -hmm. And all of that is really great to see. Very amazing. So that kind of leads into my next question in terms of recidivism. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's something that we're always trying to reduce. And Mm -hmm. education we talked about and those work internships, those work opportunities. How have you seen or do you think we're doing a better job today than we were 
36 years ago. And I know when I've seen recidivism reports, it's more over the past five years that I've seen the numbers. But what have mm -hmm. you seen happen over this longer period of time? Mm -hmm. Recidivism rates over the 36-year period, people kept changing the definition of yeah. recidivism. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid we can't go back and with a say it's not ugh it's not apples to apples. But in general, what does your sense tell you? From when we started a common definition, we saw recidivism reduce from about 44% down into the low 30s. Mm -hmm. Now recidivism sort of slid up a little bit last year and it might slide up some more. There was sort of a trough nationally in recidivism during what's now being called the Great Recession mm -hmm. recently that we're now coming out of. What we are doing, we're coming to the end of a recidivism reduction grant. So starting with 2018, all of the systemic changes that the Iowa Department of Corrections has been putting in place will be fully implemented and from there, the goal is to reduce recidivism by 20%, beginning with people being released from prison or coming on to supervision, higher risk offenders coming on to supervision in 2018. Mm -hmm. So it's a good thing to have all of this systemic planning in place and starting to roll out because we're seeing a slight uptick in recidivism now. I don't know fully why, but I have a feeling that if we are able to look at recidivism by risk level, and by the same risk level, we've also changed um, risk assessments over this time period. But now that we have a consistent risk assessment going forward, it'll be interesting to see how we can move the needle in terms of those higher risk offenders reducing their risk. Mm -hmm. Because if we can take a higher risk offender and reduce their risk, then the entire recidivism rate will start to come down. Mm -hmm. Very interesting work. And part of that then too is managing that prison population. And I know that's one thing that the Board of Parole works diligently at to try to keep those population numbers in line with what the facilities mm -hmm. are able to handle. What do you see as some of the biggest challenges in managing the prison population besides the recidivism sentencing yes there issues, will or... continue to be some sentencing effects felt in the coming years criminal and juvenile justice planning continues to do the prison population forecast which i did for a good long time <laughs> myself i will tell you that and although there have been two years now of sentencing reforms and that's been good to see because in rolling back some of the mandatory minimums for drug offenses and for some other offenses, that gives the parole board more ability to look at offender risk factors and consider earlier release for people who are lower risk and get them out the door and into a, a work setting and back with their families and do a re-entry so that they can become taxpayers and not tax drainers. And that reserves our prison space for people who are higher risk. And there are maybe some people in prison 
who will never be motivated to change so and who are high risk so we do still need some prison space for those people who are best kept with us for a long time but be that as it may the prison population forecast continues to tell us that the people serving 70% of their sentences and only 15% earn time will continue to grow within the prison population we have not seen a murderer, murder second degree person, walk out the door yet and won't for some years because 70% of 50 years is a good long time and actually the only people that have discharged from those sentences have been due to death. For many people in prison on these long sentences and long mandatory minimums, they're effectively serving life as well. And speaking of the only reason they're discharging is due to death, it seemed like there for a while, a couple of months ago, there was a press release almost weekly or bi-weekly of an offender passing away in prison, which speaks to the fact that the prison population is aging. Yes, and that is uh, one of the major challenges with the prison management today. The aging prison population comes with an increased cost for medical and pharmaceuticals. And that is booming. And efforts to contain those costs by finding greater efficiencies, by running our own pharmacy within the Department of Corrections, those will work just so far. And we can try to keep the cap on those costs, but they are starting to really increase and will continue to do so. The other challenge is with the mentally ill offender in prison. There are a lot of them and they also use medical and pharmaceutical and mental health services. We have an entire graduated levels of care for mentally ill offenders within our prison system from acute and subacute units all the way down to integration with other general population much like mentally ill people in society are mostly integrated within the general population. But we need to be aware of mental health status because just like people have mental health crises from time to time with their chronic conditions out here in society, such as with major depressive disorders, with bipolar disorders, people inside the prison system can have these events as well and suddenly be in need of a higher level of care. And then do we have an institution that also has a hospice wing? We have hospice rooms in many of our prisons now. More than one. Oh gosh, yes, we have hospice rooms. I know at the Iowa State Penitentiary, at Anamosa State Penitentiary, at the Iowa Correctional Institution for Women could be more than that, mm -hmm. but yep. Yeah. Oh, Medical and Classification Center, mm -hmm. IMCC. You touched a little bit on the sentencing reform that has been done the last couple of sessions and doing away with some mandatory minimums, particularly for the nonviolent drug offenders. We did that a couple of years ago, but recently at the national level, there's been more of a swing or more of a publicity for bringing that back in terms of or having more stringent mandatory minimums for nonviolent drug offenders. And 
I was just wondering, given the fact that you've seen it all during your last 36 years, and I don't want to I certainly don't want to uh, have you go out on a limb, but what are your thoughts on works better? Which direction you think Iowa should continue to go in? With my work in offender risk assessment, particularly the current risk assessment, which, which I've designed, revising the old ones, that we have the power now because of the information boom, the, the data boom, we can now predict the likelihood of violence in drug offenders, the likelihood of violence in people convicted of burglary, the likelihood of violence in... So just because someone comes to prison on a drug offense absolutely does not mean that that person is a lower risk. Instead of painting offenders by convicting offense with a broad brush, we can strategically incapacitate and provide resources to lower the risk of higher risk individuals. One factor that can make a otherwise nonviolent drug offender at risk for committing a violent offense is confirmed gang membership. Mm -hmm. That confirmed gang members membership contributes a lot to the points for violence and with good reason. That's a factor to take a look at. I've also heard over the last few years that I was kind of a leader in some areas nationally in terms of offender programs or what we're doing at the institutional level. Give me an example or two Mm -hmm. of that, of where I was kind of Mm -hmm. led the way and other states have adopted some of the things that we've tried and have been successful. Mm -hmm. One recent one is that we've piloted Achieving Change Through Value-Based Behavior, called ACTIVE, a new model of domestic abuse programming that represents a significant change in how we provide a treatment program to reduce the risk of domestic violence in the state of Iowa. We started that program out in the community with domestic abusers required by the court to go through a domestic abuse program. It uses a completely different model of offender change and those classes are run differently than the frequently confrontational style of the old domestic abuse program. So we've now started those programs within the prison system and we are sending or have sent some of our staff to Vermont to help them start up the active programs there. And I know with John Baldwin going to Illinois, John being the former Department of Corrections director, you know, he borrows from what we've done in Iowa quite a bit, doesn't he? I but haven't spoken to yeah. with him. <laughs> well, yes, he's not he's absolutely not gonna take me there. I, I grew up in Illinois. I'm not gonna go back. <laughs> I was going to ask you as well you've lived through many budget cycles, worked through many budget cycles. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Today, what do you think are some of the biggest administrative challenges for the Department of Corrections? With the budget cuts that have been necessary, the challenge is to double down on treating the higher risk offender and shifting resources away from the lower risk offender, whether they're in community-based corrections or in the prison system. 
And that's kind of a hard thing for people to do. Lower risk offenders can have issues that we want to go in and help them. But the reality is with a shrinking budget, in order to make sure that we provide opportunities for change for higher risk offenders, and that contributes to the public safety more than helping a lower risk offender whose risk really to be rearrested is low. It's a challenge that we constantly have to reinforce with ourselves and it's more important than ever before to find these resource shifts so that we can continue on our mission to lower the risk of offenders who would otherwise walk out of the prison door and victimize someone else. Mm-hmm kind of wrap up a little bit here and let you look back over the last 36 years. You mentioned the moment when the prison riot was going on and it kind of gave you the full picture of what you were working on. But looking back, do you have any moment in your career or any project in your career that stands out in terms of, wow, that was really the best work I've ever done, and I'm really proud of that. Yes, and that's my recent work, so I'm going out on a a high point. In 2013, I designed the Iowa Violence and Victimization Instrument, the IVY, for the Board of Parole so that they could have an updated, validated risk assessment that could predict violence and could also predict the likelihood of victimization. Because if someone breaks into my house or steals my car or steals my identity, those are victimization offenses also. Mm -hmm. And so we have a scale to predict violence separately and then a victimization scale. After that, the Department of Corrections, in a moment of aha, decided that they should adopt the IV2 for focusing resources on prison programming resources on offenders who are higher risk and devoting more time to case planning for people who are higher risk inside the prison system. And then around that same time, the district directors of community-based corrections, the Departments of Correctional Services, asked me to take a look at their risk assessment that indicates the level of or intensity of community supervision. Do people need intensive supervision or can they safely be supervised at a lower level of supervision? And I asked the district directors, well, and I can do that and do you want a violence predictor? And they said, yes, we want a violence predictor. And they wanted it to be valid for women as well as men. So I did two separate studies where I tested the IVY on community-based corrections populations, men on probation and parole and women on probation and parole. And that validated for both sets of uh, offenders out in the community. So that became the basis of a new assessment for them that we added a few other factors for community stability, which is definitely a concern for community-based correction supervision because we need to provide a higher level of supervision for some offenders if they need stability, if they need more help finding employment, need to get their living situation more stable, need to get off alcohol and drugs, those kinds of issues, stability issues. So with adding those factors to the IVY, we created the Iowa Risk Revised. And so for the first time ever in the state of Iowa, we're 
three different aspects of our justice system, correction system, are looking at risk the same way. Mm -hmm. The parole board is seeing risk the same way as institution staff and the same way as community-based correction staff. Mm -hmm. And that's really rewarding and not that many states have an assessment that does that. That's great. Congratulations. Thanks. That's wonderful work. So, and then also looking back over the last 36 years, thinking of yourself when you were 20 and starting <laughs> with the state, what advice would you give someone brand new, just out of college, starting with the state today? Have the initiative. I took some initiative in my internship to take a broader view of what was going on in the department in which I was doing my internship and saw some opportunities. And that is exactly what an internship in my mind should be about, is it gets your foot in the door. And then if you have just broaden your mind, see where you really are, and you'll see those opportunities. I have to believe that even in these challenging budget times, that it's possible for someone to get started at the state and have that opportunity to move up and move around within the state and develop a career and uh, expertise. And make a difference. I think that you've truly made a difference over the last 36 years. So what are your plans for retirement? My last day with the state is September 22nd, which happens to be my sister's birthday. And I may be open to some consulting in the correction system, in the justice system, depending on if people want to have me in other states or other jurisdictions. But mainly, one of the reasons to get out now is because I have been selling science fiction stories. One of my stories that was published last year has just now been republished in an anthology called The Best Science Fiction of the Year. So if I am going to, this is something that started out as a hobby and then became a serious hobby. And now maybe it's because I have this ambitious streak always, ambitious and competitive streak <laughs> inside me. I am now just gunning to <laughs> become the best science fiction writer I can. And uh, what a shot in the arm to have a story in the best science fiction of the year. But if I am going to ride this wave, I need more time to write, mm -hmm. and the 40-hour work week is getting in the way. Well, I have no doubt that you will be very successful, So, and I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so thanks for taking the time in one of your last 50-some days left <laughs> to chat, and I'm sure that we will hear of more great things coming from you in the future. <laughs> thanks, Alice.